welcome to Equiosity, the podcast about all things equine with a special emphasis on the horse-human bond. My name is Alexandra Kurland. I'm the author of The Click That Teaches, a step-by-step guide in pictures, and many other books and DVDs on clicker training. And I'm joined by Dominique Day, one of the co-founders of Cavalia. And today we have a guest who I wanted to have on the podcast for a very long time. So we're joined today by Suzanne Koenig. And Suzanne, you've joined me on the Horses for Future podcast. You helped me set up my vegetable garden because I wanted to talk with you about uh, growing of things because you have your amazing vegetable garden, which I have been in, and your Feed Thy Neighbor farm stand, which I just find an amazing concept. And of course, it feels as though we've just been visiting because this past weekend you were in the second virtual clinic that I just did. And I definitely want to talk about that. And then we're going to talk about rope handling, which is great fun. And you're, would you like to just, before we jump into all of that, would you just like to give a little bit of background in terms of, yes, you're a horse person, but you're also a professional dog trainer? So, yeah, um, thank you so much for having me on, Alex and Dominique. This is quite, a, uh, quite an honor. So I started my uh, professional dog tr- training career a couple decades ago down in California. I'm currently living in Washington, Port Townsend to be exact, where I worked at the Marin Humane Society and um, taught classes, did behavior consults, evaluated shelter dogs, worked with volunteers, and many other various jobs as come when you work in a shelter. Um, I worked there for several years and then was hired to become the director of behavior and training at the Sonoma Humane Society up in Santa Rosa, California, um, which was much closer to my home. So that was a, a nice commute, 10 minutes as opposed to 45. Uh, and there I really expanded my education on enrichment, uh, dog-to-dog play, observation skills, and really working with volunteers. And I just emphasize that because that's kind of where the rope handling transferred to leash handling began. Uh, I moved, I, I left that position four years ago and moved to Port Townsend, Washington with my four dogs and two horses and my partner. And I opened a a private training business and have now expanded that to be a life skills and enrichment daycare in addition to the private training and consultation business that I run. This was primarily developed through the COVID situation. Although I had been doing board and train, boarding and daycare for my clients, when the COVID thing hit, things really changed. And what I had several puppy clients at the time. And we we just stopped. And that really got me thinking about, wow, what are, what are all these puppies out there getting in terms of exposure, proper exposure, happy, safe, uh, positive exposure to the outside world, if any, um, and how can I help? So I thought about it and I thought, well, I don't, we don't need their humans here 
for them to be exposed to things, for them to meet other dogs, for them to learn how uh, to play games and do some basic training and have an enriched experience. So that has turned into an incredible opportunity for the pups and the adolescents and some of the adult dogs that I work with are invited to come because they are excellent babysitters and puppy raisers. Um, and so that's where I'm at right now, in fact, today. Yes. That, that, there it is in a nutshell. In addition, I am a, uh, I don't know exactly how to say it, kind of over the moon gardener. I really take on a lot in the gardening realm and I started a feed dynamic farm stand, which feeds people who might not have the, the means to buy food and also the neighbors who do have means help support that. And it is so successful, I cannot keep up with it. <laughs> <laughs> but it's a lot of fun and I get to meet a lot of people that way. So that's how it is. I had not realized that that was what was sitting behind the, uh, your current puppy and, and dog daycare was the coronavirus. But I think that is brilliant because I've heard other people talking about this, that, that there have been a lot of people who've gotten sort of the coronavirus puppy because they're home. But then, right. oh my goodness, I'm home, but I'm nowhere else. Exactly. What's going to... Uh, happen when the world returns to some form of normal where I'm out and about. That's uh, so true. And it was yeah. very evident to me, especially with my connections. I took in a couple of shelter dogs from Sonoma, I mean, from Seattle Humane during the COVID. And I was in contact with many of my shelter um, colleagues. And um, I was hearing that um, they were finding fosters for all their dogs. The shelters that I was involved with, and there's like four or five of them, had completely cleared out. They had gotten them all into fosters. And then the news started coming down that adoptions were off the charts. <laughs> and then I kept, and then, I, you know, with, along with the puppy thought, because I had all of those clients um, that were we just stopped seeing. I thought, well, gosh, goodness, there's all of these shelter dogs now going into homes, which is great and fantastic that they have someone there with them while they're doing that adjustment, but they're not getting the help that they need. So I do have a few of those recent adoptions as well. And yeah, it's, it's an interesting way to make lemonade out of lemons, I'll tell you. Yes. Well, and we're all doing that. I mean, that was, yes, we are. That's, that's in part the reason behind the virtual clinics I'm referring to as the stay at home clinics. And, mm -hmm. and the, the first one that I gave, I have to say, I was, ah, uh, I wasn't sure, you know, it was like, because uh, the, the clinics are such an incredible experience. And there's, you know, we're working directly with the horses. And how can we how can we do something that is worthwhile via the internet when we can't touch and feel and smell and, you know, play with horses? And uh, so I was a little bit, uh, should I, shouldn't I? And that first clinic, I was just over the moon at how well it, it worked. And then this past weekend, I was in New York State, but I was in California at the same time. It's sort of how it feels. It feels very Star Trek-y to me that, um, that I could meet up with all of you with the familiar group and some new people as well. And so 
Can you describe a little bit what it was like as a participant and what your impressions from the use of the internet as a teaching vehicle? Yes. Well, I was really pleasantly surprised. You know, I love our our in our Half Moon Bay clinics. I yes. you know, I continue to travel twice a year and and help Shaley with the with the cooking, with the cooking. And the, <laughs> the organizing, etc. And I so enjoy that time. Um, it really is my only vacation, really. And and I love the dinner table talks and I love catching up with so many of the um, participants are return people and have become great friends. And so there was a hesitance for me thinking, well, I'm just not sure that, you know, what I take away from the clinics is really going to be available through the online stay at home clinic design. Yes. Well, I, well, I'm not going to miss a clinic if I don't have to. So signed up, I did. And I was really uh, amazed and took so much away from this past weekend in many areas, not just in the, the clinic material that we covered, but also in just how adaptable we are in learning new technology and taking a format that we normally would experience in person and taking it to the internet. Uh, I think that it was just a fantastic group of people. I was really impressed with how easily people were able to take the information they were given about their videos and then shoot back another video where they had revised what they had done and, um, and got better results. And I was really started me thinking, wow, this is a very valuable tool I should be using <laughs> right away. Uh, and so that's, I've spent some time looking into how I'm going to do this. And I've got a couple of uh, long distance clients now that have, have offered to be my guinea pigs. So that's the technology piece. I really found it to be um, just a, a real eye opener in that regard. And I think to that, to that same topic, you know, we've been doing this now for what, five, six months almost? Yes. yes. And many of us have had to work from home um, with in, you know, businesses or corporations or whatever that are somewhere else. So Zoom has become their main way of communicating with other colleagues and and I think a lot of us are using it socially as well I know a few people who do and so it's not as foreign to us as it might have been say if you just decided no COVID I'm just going to do a long distance clinic right I, and so it's it's so interesting the way species adapt to the environment and this is a really good example and how a little push, you know, because I, I don't think I ever would have done an online clinic without the nudge of something like the coronavirus. And yet what I've said to people is if the coronavirus disappeared tomorrow by some wonderful miracle, I would, I would continue to include the online clinics because I thought, first of all, we were able to get people really comfortable in a very short period of time and that they were starting to share video and that universal comment of, 
you know, I hate taking video, I never take video, I don't want to take video, and all of a sudden they're, they're zipping video to me via WeTransfer, and that how much you can get from just a minute or two of video, how much you can explore and the detail that you can go into. And I think the, what the video allows you to do is to slow something down and to reverse it and replay it and slow it down and speed it up and reverse it and replay it until you see it. The other thing too, I'm assuming, although I wasn't present there, I know I would be, a lot of us would be reluctant to putting our horses on a trailer and doing the trip yes. and going through this experience where most of it is, you know, a very stressful horse because he's away from home. Whereas now you can have, you can show your horse in a, in a real life situation where there is no stress. That's right. So you don't have to get rid of all that before you really get to the problem that you do experience at home. You're right there. Yeah, we had that comment from several people that, you know, they would never have been able to get their horse to a clinic mm -hmm. or their horse wouldn't be ready for a clinic for quite a while. So it eliminates that, that issue of geography and it eliminates the stress, it eliminates the expense. And, and yet through the video, you, you can get feedback on your horse mm -hmm. in the environment that he normally works on. And it was, it was just really Fun. And it was fun to see the changes that were occurring in the horses and the people. It was really neat. And this this coming week, well, it depends upon when this is published, which whether this, this clinic will be upcoming or or have already happened. But one of the clinics I'm giving virtually is going to be a rope handling clinic. And I'm so looking forward to that because you think at first, oh, you can't. You can't teach the rope handling via the internet. But based on what I've been seeing in these previous two, I think this may be, in many ways, the best way to teach rope handling. Because and you can't have that kind of close-up when you're a group, even if it's a small group. I'm assuming that yeah. the rope handling, some of it you can show from up close. Yeah, yeah, we can. And we can really, I think what we can really do is highlight and zoom in on those critical details mm -hmm. and we yeah. can we can show it until you see it which i think right. is is the important thing and then you can you can review someone else's uh, um, rope handling and critique it and help them perfect it yes so so some of the things that i found to be really valuable in with the video and also with the type of presentation that Zoom allows. And, and one thing I will add is that the small group, um, of course, is always um, ideal yes. in so many ways. But yes. I, I, in this particular case, it really did, I think, make a difference. I could, I could see where you could have. These are not webinars. These right. are not but webinars. Can, these, are, these, are, these are small groups so that we really can we can work individually and yeah. yet you're not alone right the burden is not on all on you to uh, come up with a question right 
so I really, I really liked that, that it could be very focused on the topic. I really appreciated that you could, um, that you could present a prepared presentation, two of my favorites that you do, by the way, um, yes. Extinction and Loopy Training, and that we had a, a kind of a, a topic or a, a loosely um, formed idea of what the weekend was going to be about. And you could prepare things for that in advance, set everyone up so that we were all basically on the same page, and then send everybody off to go do their homework, come back, and then the video was so much, I gotta say this, it so much more valuable to me than in person. And the reason was, is that when you're at the barn, there are so many things going on that it just takes a second and you could miss a very important part of a, yes. a, of a session. Um, and, and you can't replay it because it's gone. It's not going to be the same the next time it happens. That's right. And so that I found so valuable that we could go back into those videos and really see, which I think for everybody was very helpful because as you pinpointed things that we could do better, everybody got that. Everybody got that message. And I think it was, a, in terms of education, I think it was actually superior to an in-person clinic. Not to take away from in-person clinics, because <laughs> that is one of my favorite things ever. But as an educational device or platform, I think this um, stay-at-home stay clinics was superior. I loved it for skill building. I really loved it for skill building. And I love the, that we can reach out geographically into a much wider net. It was, it's really exciting. And I don't mean for this to sound like a advertisement though, in a way it is, but I think it gets back to the point that you made of, you know, how adaptable and we are. And we're all experiencing uh, the effects of the coronavirus. We're all having to make changes and, and in the way that we do things, the places that we can travel to, the events that we can attend, the work that we can do. And I think the, the point in all of this is we could just sort of crawl into a hole and get really depressed. Mm -hmm. uh, look at what we've lost look at what has changed, look at what we're not able to do, which is not what clicker training is about. Clicker training is, you know, okay, I can take a moment or two to look at, oh, look at my horse mugging me, <laughs> it's all over me. But then I need to shift my focus to, um, what is it that I want? What is it that I want? Right. And so, you know, if we want connection, all right, well, we're not going to get together physically, we need to have physical distancing, but we can still have connection. You know, what is it that we want? We want great learning opportunities. And what this experience this weekend, this past weekend showed me is that we are living in the age of Star Trek in so many ways. <laughs> Who knew? Who knew? Um, yeah, and, and yay, thank goodness that we're living in the age of Star Trek and that I can uh, get in my transporter meaning sit in front of my computer screen <laughs> and suddenly find myself shush, uh, in a group in California 
and Washington State and all the other places that you were, the West Coasters were in because we were in the West Coast time zone. And then, shush, I can be back in New York State in time to feed my horses in the evening. It's right. an amazing planet that we're living on. And you're still um, missing Susan's cooking, though. Yeah. <laughs> yes, 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 definitely. Well, she, she'll, she'll have to send me a care package, that's all. Uh, you know, I'll expect um, a little care package to arrive the day before a clinic or something. It's an extraordinary time that we're living through. We're living through a huge social experiment. We are living through, I mean, we, have, we, have, we don't know what sits in front of us good or bad. For some people, it's going to be a tremendously sad time because they will lose somebody that who may, they deeply love. Right now, we can absolutely invent and create and do, do things in a new way that enhance what we've always done. And I think that's really the message that I want to get across, that we can remain hopeful even when there's a lot around us that could pull us down into despair. Right. And thank God for technology. I mean, yes. at, least, at least it's been around, this, this level of technology has been around long enough for us all to be somewhat familiar with it and to have the tools needed to, um, to follow through with it. So, you know, if this had happened 30 years ago, it would have been a very different experience. That's right. Because 30 years ago, we were still pretty astounded when a door slid open for us without our right. having to. <laughs> we were just entering the age of, of Star Trek, and we didn't have fancy cell phones that we right. carried around in our hip pocket. We didn't have COVID-19 either. That's no, right. we didn't. That's right. We, didn't. we could have. We could have. That's right. That's right. Well, so we what we really wanted to talk to you about. Yeah. Uh, or one of the other things I wanted to talk to you about is the rope handling. So I've developed what I refer to as the Tai Chi rope handling, which is a style of using a lead rope that allows you to be very powerful and effective without being fear inducing. And we are working with our horses. We're working with a very large and very powerful animal that can, in the blink of an eye, turn into a freight train that's running over the top of us. And there are times when we need to redirect that freight train energy away from us. And there also are times when we are working with a dance partner who is as elegant and light and beautiful as can be. And we want to be able to join that, join in the dance and communicate clearly and kindly down a lead rope and this rope handling allows all of that and so much more. And what you have found really interesting and what I find interesting in return is how much you have applied it to the work that you do with dogs. So can you talk a little bit about, sure. about what you have learned both in, in how you work directly with the dogs and also uh, some of what you share with your clients. Yes. So, you know, I met you, oh, I think it was about uh, eight years ago. I have to go back and look at my notes, but I'm pretty sure my first clinic was, um, was in October and 
um, I had just um, been diagnosed, had some really serious back issues, and spent about six weeks, um, or six months, excuse me, um, rehabbing, um, and ended up with something called stenosis, which many people um, do get, and it, but it was in my cervical spine. And it's aggravated by pulling my, my anything pulling my arms or me pulling anything with my arms. And that is how, like a dog, <laughs> like a dog or a horse. And that is how I found you because I'm pretty sure at that time I was working with five horses. I had five horses. One, a couple of them were, were youngsters and what I was doing wasn't working for me. And since it wasn't working for me, it wasn't working for them. The rope handling and just learning the whole clicker training approach with the horses as you teach it changed all of that for me. I was also working in the shelter and dealing with a lot of large, untrained, highly aroused, sometimes anxious dogs with behavior that that one would label these, these terms. And both of these things were aggravating this injury. So my thought process was, look, leashes exist. They are part of our world, just like a lead rope is part of the world in the horse world. There's no way we're going to be able to eliminate leashes. They're going to be in the hands of people who are uneducated. They're going to be in the hands of children. They're going to be in the hands of um, unskilled volunteers. So how can we help make the leash be less aversive or make it so it means more to the, on the, the animal on the other end than just a nagging sensation, which is what I was witnessing quite a bit, watching new volunteers handle new dogs in my classes, watching um, families handle their new dog. And there was just a lot of yanking, a lot of pulling. And, you know, I think most dog trainers would admit that teaching a young dog to walk politely on leash is one of the more challenging things to do. It may not be challenging for the trainer to do, but it's certainly challenging for the handler, for the owner, the pet parent to to accomplish. And the reason for that is lack of consistency. If you need to get from point A to point B, and you're not thinking about training your dog, um, more than likely that dog is going to be pulling you part of the way. So therefore the dog is learning that the pulling works and that's problematic. Um, It's certainly problematic when you go back to trying to train the dog to walk politely on the leash. So what I really took away from from the rope handling with you was the lightness of it, the ability to get the horse to move so fluidly with you with the slightest amount of communication, or I should say just a light amount. The communication is full. It is just the the touch that is so light. And I thought, well, why can't we do this with the dogs? So a lot of the dogs that I work with, either in the shelter or clients' dogs, are also have what is labeled reactivity, um, whether that's to other people, to other dogs, moving objects, whatever it is, there is an unwanted behavior or, or series of behaviors associated with that and their environment. 
So w one of the things that I've taken away from doing this work for so long is that a dog that pulls on leash is far more likely to have one of these episodes than if the leash is loose. So the leash can trigger a reactive episode. So by taking all of that information together, I've got un uneducated handlers, we've got uneducated dogs, we have dogs that um, respond um, in an unwanted way to, to environmental stimuli. How can I get the dog to be in control or have choice over how that leash is used? And the way that I adapted the rope handling to the leash handling, it's pretty similar. I use two hands as often as I can, and I slide down. I don't necessarily always slide down to the snap, but sometimes I do, especially with a, a young dog who's just learning. And I wait for just the moment of release. And that release, so it's a shaping exercise. Yes. So if, if I get even a twitch, an ear twitch in my direction, a head move in my direction, or even a weight shift that just, I, it's, it's coming towards me, I mark and reinforce it immediately, and all tension on the lead is, is removed. Yep. Loopy training. Loopy you know, training. Go to a place, loopy training. Go to a place in the training where you can get a yes answer, and that's where you begin. And exactly. that's that tiny, small kernel starting point. Yeah. It's exactly and the I, same as the horses. Exactly the same. And with a, um, so with really, with young, with pups, you know, this works almost immediately. And I will use a lure uh, with, a, with a dog who's not quite connected often, um, that's not connected with me or with the leash or is really uneducated about leash, leashes. Um, but most dogs, by the time I see them, have either uh, some pretty strongly developed habits with leashes, as in pulling, or are just savvy that, you know, there's a human there and the human's the one that I want to pay attention to because they've got goodies and, and they are fun. So sometimes I will lure it when necessary. I really want it to be a default behavior that they respond. If there is any tension on the leash, then they come closer and they, they put the slack in the lead. It's a two-way street. I'm not saying that I, the dog is the only one responsible for the leash by any means, but my experience, I've seen so many people, you know, just walking down the street or getting out of their car or coming to work. They are busy doing five other things and they have a dog on the end of a string. They're not paying attention to what is happening on that leash. And I thought, wow, that is really unfair to the dog to be tied to this person that is doing five things that don't have anything to do with the dog. Yeah, and that are often cause the leash to be swinging in all, you know, in odd ways as well. Right. You know, I mean, certainly this, with the horses that happens. Yes, you know, you're, indeed. You're, you're trying to teach finesse down the lead rope and then this person is is telling you about their day and they've got the leash in their hand and they're right. using their hands to describe how right. you know it's like ah. exactly <laughs> you know i'm just like i'm grabbing hands and putting them on there okay target your hand to your hip yes <laughs> um yeah so, the lead over the horse's back park yes. your dog do something <laughs> 
do something yes. about that animal. Yeah. yeah. So, so you know, recognizing that as far as the animal is concerned, you know, there there should be communication, and if they haven't had an education to let them know that um, okay, this is a this is a chill time. Go to your station and wait while you know your handler has a conversation, or if they don't have the education that when your handler stops and talks to somebody, your that's your duty to sit and wait patiently. This take this takes time, training, and experience, and um, and not all volunteers handlers in general, um, whether they be um, dog pet parents or, or volunteers in shelters, they don't necessarily have that education yet. So one of the things that I found that was very helpful, and, I, and I, this, this came, I should say, not only from watching my students and and the volunteers and, and the shelter dogs, but from my own dogs. You know, I was fortunate enough to take my dogs to work with me every day, often having handfuls of things to bring in and, and many people coming and asking me questions. And I wanted their experience to also mean something as well. And that's where I started with the work and seeing how it might um, affect them because you know to be sure there is an element of of negative reinforcement in in the leash handling of this you know there's there's a pressure could be aversive so what i wanted to do was teach the dog but through shaping and non-aversive method of finding a sweet spot in the leash where they're not feeling tension and the owner is comfortable with the um, with not being dragged around, so to speak. So that that came through that that process, that shaping process. So when the dog feels the tension, they give to the tension. Now the uh, the next part of that is the communication through the leash, and many uh, handlers, many um, trainers, really don't need the leash. Right, they've they've trained that dog so well, and the dog is so interested in in being with them that the leash is really. I often say it's like a seatbelt. It's there for the law and it's there for security. So this may not be the a, a technique that is that they might be interested in, but for reactive dogs or dogs that are overly aroused or um, have emotional responses to outside stimuli, there is a connection between the leash going tight and the intensity of that reaction in most cases, in my experience. So that is where I really wanted to get some communication going between the handler and the leash and the dog. So as just as an example, I'm currently working with a 170 pounds Great Dane whose owner is 110 pounds. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Um, okay. Uh, so this is not unlike working with a horse. You're working with an animal that outweighs you, that um, is stronger than you. And if they really want to, they can have control over the situation. Uh, the Dane has developed some issues um, with other dogs and other dogs and cars. So I've been 
really trying to help this person. They, they want this dog to get out. They want to be able to give her an enriched life. They don't want to be have her regulated to, to their property and nowhere else. So we've been going out. She came to me um, several private sessions where I taught her basically the rope handling, the dog. Yes. She was giving to that slight pressure. Then I started teaching her cues. So if I slide down the leash and just squeeze the leash just a little bit and twist my hand as though it's the clasp of the um, lead rope on the horse. Yes. Then that means we're going this direction. Right. And, and, you're, and, not, and not only that, but she's following me. She's following my shoulders. She's following my hips. So we're, we are taking that, that turn. And that little added piece really helps that dog follow through. And here's the thing. If it were me handling this dog every day, it probably wouldn't be something I'd need. Right? I would have ways of getting her to, to turn with me without any problem. But the handler, her primary handler, is not, I'm going to say she's, it's not that she's not capable. It's that her mind isn't there yet. Her mind isn't um, in that how to change this, uh, change the environment quick enough so that the animal doesn't have the um, unwanted response to the environment. Okay. So with, but if the dog knows that if I slide down the leash, that we're going to make that, that something, there's information coming. I can feel that happening. So the dog is aware. And now with a slight turn of your wrist, you're moving to your left or your right, depending on, on what side you're on. And you're moving with your handler. And it works like a charm. She just moves right around. It's a U-turn and off they go away from the environment that is triggering the response. And then she can get reinforced for that. And then she gets immediately reinforced for that. That's absolutely yeah, right. Absolutely. So there's never in this process, the, the dog is always being reinforced for the right answer, always. And the right answer is made really easy. So that that is something that I really take um, seriously is this isn't just going to hang on the leash until the dog gives. This is about, like I said originally, it's a shaping exercise. When you feel, and I guess I, when I say tension, I'm talking about the lightest touch you could possibly imagine. So um, I often do what you do with my client and have them hold the leash and I will slide my hand down the lead or down the leash and ask them, when do you feel it? Right. Yes. And, and I ask them to hold it tight and ask them when they can feel it. And then I ask them to be relaxed and when do they feel it? So they can really see the difference in what's happening when their dog is aroused and what they can feel and what they can't feel. So creating sensitivity around what that leash feels like for the dog, creating a cue with the leash so that when they feel that slight touch, it actually means something to them. That's my goal. Yeah. Definitely practice least intrusive process in you know the humane hierarchy when I'm doing my training. So if it's not needed, then we don't use it. You know, if if I've got a dog that's you know 
keeping a J, we call it, or a smile in the leash at all times, then, then it's not necessary. Or if I have a dog who is more interested in their owner than they are in whatever the environmental stimuli. When I have a handler who has a problem keeping that leash loose though, then I really want the dog to help out for their own sake. I want them to have a choice in, can I keep this leash loose? Because my handler isn't doing that, taking that responsibility. So it's a less stressful for the dog because they've learned how to keep the leash loose and they're adapting to the leash pressure, which in most cases is inevitable. Yes. In the real world, that's what's going to happen. Right. Yeah. Precisely. But if you, if you never teach the dog a way of, of coming off of that pressure, then they have no, they have no hope. I'd like to think of it as it's a partnership, you know, mm. where, where both ends of the leash have a say. Well, you would hope so, yes. Right? And so, but, but the dog doesn't know that until we've taught him that he has a means in which to keep the leash loose. Because if every time you take a step forward when the leash is tight, you're teaching the dog that there's reinforcement in yep. keeping the leash Pulling. tight. Yeah. So why can't we teach them that the, re the, really, re the really great reinforcement is when the leash is loose? Mm -hmm. And so, you know, it's, it, there's a multiple um, approaches to this. This isn't the, you know, the communication down the lead is not the only way to do this or um, the, release, the release of tension is not the only way to reinforce, of course. I do a lot of this work on a long line as well. So like a 20 foot lead. And as soon as I get that connection, well, look look what you get to do you get to go chase that squirrel um up the tree or you get to go smell the sunday news over there on that fence pole reinforcing with um, a functional reinforcer being able to explore the environment and then asking the dog to come on back and let's do it again yeah there's a there's a lot of different ways to reinforce the the dog helping you keep the leash loose but when you're working with the the more challenging dogs that have problems in the environment, sometimes our reinforcements are limited. We can't let that dog go running. We can't allow them. And maybe the, maybe the issue is prey drive that we're dealing with and certainly chasing the squirrel is not what we're going to be reinforcing. What do you use for, to teach and reinforce the owner, the future owner of mm -hmm. that dog? Well, to, to give them motivation to mm -hmm. learn how to do this kind of rope handling. Right. Well, most of my clients these days, right, are not, these are private clients and I'm working one-on-one -on -one and they've contacted me. Unfortunately, most of them are contacting me long after a problem is well established. So their, their motivation obviously is to make their lives a little easier and their dog's life, life less stressful. And so one of the first things that I really find useful in helping them is to teach the dog to walk politely on leash. I find that many of these dogs that, are, that have challenges with certain stimuli in the environment are what we would label as leash pullers. 
They pull unleash. It's part of their... Well, they've learned it worked. Exactly. And so if you're working with a... If you have a dog that sees a what we will just call a trigger or something that triggers an emotional outburst and you pull on that leash. So what often happens is an owner has experienced this numerous times. It's embarrassing. It's frightening. It's a lot of unpleasant emotions that they're experiencing. So they want this to stop. They also, often there's fear involved. Like they're afraid their dog is going to hurt somebody. So they'll, their immediate response is to jerk that leash or pull that dog away. And so now you've just added tension and stress to the situation. And that makes the, um, the, the outburst much, that much worse. It also, I think, becomes a cue to the dog to really you know, to really express whatever it is that they, that they want to let this other, whatever is a human or a dog or whatever, know. And often it's increase, distance increasing behaviors. It's lunging, barking, showing of teeth. These are the behaviors that are often being expressed, shown by the, by the animal. So what we want to do is help the owner before that happens by keeping that leash loose and giving the slightest amount of um, information along with our voice and, and, all, and our body cues and all of that verbal cues. But we're going to slide down the lead, give the dog just a little bit of information that, hey, we're going this way. And we're gonna do it long before that reactive moment happens. And if I can get them to start recognizing that, to get the owner to be hypervigilant, about what's in the environment and take an action prior to an episode, then the reinforcement for them is right there. It's like, wow, that's amazing. That, that worked. And so I guess the motivation is watching me do it and seeing that it's successful. And then their reinforcement in that is being successful themselves when they do it. I always set them up just like I would set an animal I'm training up to be successful. So I'm not going to take the dog to a very busy location where there are many triggers all around them. I would take them somewhere where I can be in control of the environment. Mm -hmm. Basically called setups. Yeah, which we do for the horses as well. Correct. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. But coming back to the horses that one of the other things is the, the emotional and physical balance and the connection between the two. Ah. Suzanne has brought us to one of my favorite subjects to talk about, and that's the connection between physical and emotional balance. Certainly in horses, when you help a horse to find good physical balance, this seems to have a direct effect on his emotional well-being. Suzanne is going to be sharing with us what she's seen in the dogs. Does it work the same way? Is there the same connection? So when you focus on a dog's balance, do you see a shift in his emotional well-being as well? But that's just the beginning of the topics that we covered in the rest of our conversation. So I'm going to stop here and we'll pick up again next week.
If you want to learn more about the stay-at-home clinics, visit my website, theclickercenter.com. You'll find a schedule and the registration information in the events tab of the website. I have three clinics scheduled for August, and if the time zone matches where you live, I hope you'll join me as we invent together what clinics are going to be like in the age of corona. And if you want to learn more about Suzanne and her work, I've posted her contact information in the show notes. You can find those at equosity.com. So thank you for listening. And next week, we'll have part two of this conversation. Bye.